0: Welcome to the podcast, Bringing Truth to Life, where we talk about what the Scriptures say that can help you get unstuck from the thorny issues of life and encourage you to live the life you've been wanting to live with Christ. Our speaker today is Henry Clay. We are in a series called Drawing Near to the Throne of Grace on deepening your prayer life. May this be helpful to you, and may it also give you truth to share with those you seek to encourage. This is week eight of our series, Drawing Near to the Throne of Grace, and the title is Nuts and Bolts. It's practical considerations. This is our mop-up operation for our eight weeks, and uh, Mr. Goodman shared beforehand uh, one of his favorite verses on prayer, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. If you You probably already know it, but if you don't just jot it down because it's so good. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard or garrison your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we want to just start with that thought today. Well, tonight we're going to talk about a number of things. I'm probably going to try to cover a few more things than I ought to, but... You know I like to jog through these things, so let's just jump in and have a wonderful time. We want to begin talking about conditions of prayer. Conditions of prayer. The, uh, sometimes I used to think of conditions, in terms of, particularly in terms of prayer, in the same way that you think of conditions when somebody says, Well, I'm going to give you $5,000. Oh, well, great. All you need to do is, and they begin to give you this and this and this. He said, well, you didn't really want to give me $5,000. You just wanted to tit, dangle it out in front of me and then make it so hard that you didn't have to come through. And sometimes I think people think that's why God put conditions on prayer. He's just trying to make it difficult. But really, it's, it's, the, it's the wrong way to look at it. If I said, I want you to, to visit me in my house, in my mother's house down in Savannah, your next question would be, if you know when, when it is, I say when, but then if, if you're planning on going and that's all I've said, you would say, well, Henry, how do I get there? And I say, well, you're, you're free to do whatever you want. I, I mean, I wouldn't, who am I to say, you know, you go down here, this road, this way, you could go down another, could I go down another road? Yeah, you could go down another road. Well, you could turn, you need to turn right here, but you could turn left also. I mean, you have total freedom. The only thing is, if you go the way, whatever you, way you want to go, you may not get there. In fact, you probably won't get there. And the conditions that God has given us, is sort of like directions so that we'll get to the right place. So instead of making it difficult, he's made it easier. It's much easier if you have good directions, isn't it, to get to somebody's house? Same thing with the radio. Maybe you've heard there's a great radio station on, uh, but you want to know what are its call letters? How do I how do I synchronize my radio to get that particular station? So God says if you really want to put your prayer on greased rails, Uh, You want it to be as effective as possible. He says, i got a couple of helpful hints for you. Great. You know, when you think about conditions in that way, that's why i got this map of Uruguay, the idea of, of being able to find your way around. And God has given us some principles to find our way around because prayer isn't just us or God. It's us with God, teaming up with God. And so he tells us, well, this is how we can team up the best. The first one is to ask in faith. James 1. 6 and 7, but let him who, but let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, for let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. It sounds a little negative, you know, I say, my goodness, you know, he really seems to be taking this seriously about faith, you know, this poor fellow doubting, you know, like on the waves of the sea, and he says, that guy's not going to get anything. But why is that? God wants us to cultivate faith. What does faith say when when it's working in our lives? It says God is able, God is faithful, He has promised, and He cannot lie. Now you believe all those things. Faith is just in your spirit saying He will not lie. Well, that that shouldn't be so hard. Come on, you can say that. I don't believe God's a liar. That, you know because he has promised to respond to our prayers. And if what we pray is a little off, he says, I'll I'll even improve your prayer if I need to, so that we'll make sure that it's only a win-win situation. It's wonderful. But we need to cultivate faith because we live in a very skeptical age, and all around you are people that are grumbling and complaining and are mad at God and mad at everything else, and it sort of rubs off on you. But uh, that's why I like being around people like, uh, like Sam who was just here because they, they have seen God do great things. They have prayed and they're in contact with people that have gone through tremendous things for the name of the Lord. And that also rubs off on you. Did you know that unbelief is contagious and so is faith? And that's one of the things I look for in any city where I live. Lord, show me the people that really believe you because I, I want to just have contact with them from time to time. It just does me good. Aren't there people that it just does you good to be around? It just sort of, I don't know, thats like they're radioactive or they got this glow and you get over it and you're with them a while, you know, and you come away with at least a little bit of that. Uh, I had a very dear friend in Argentina that was that way. And just to go uh, have a cup of coffee with, with this 80-year-old lady from Italy, just go over there for two or three hours. You couldn't go for any shorter than that because she had so many stories to tell about all that the Lord had done. And you just came out sort of with an altered state. I mean, you just, it was just a wonderful thing uh, seeing the Lord through her eyes. Second uh, condition, he says, we, know, we need to learn to ask according to his will. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that, which we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Now, it doesn't mean that if you can't guess exactly what the Lord's will is, then there's no point in praying. I mean, that's, if you're first reading and if you're a little on the skeptical side, you think, oh, well, brother, you know, he, he, he hasn't been in the habit of talking to me out loud. He doesn't write it on the wall. So there's always this thing, maybe I won't guess what it is he was wanting to do. You know, he's holding his cards kind of close and I'm so, kind of so wonder what the Lord wants to do because I can only ask what he wants to do, but I don't know what he wants to do in this situation. That's not what this verse is saying. The focus of this verse, I want you to, and, and if you have a pen, I want you to circle one word in this verse uh, in your Bible or write the word down to circle it later, the word confidence. That's where he's going with this verse. He says, I want you to pray with confidence. Now, is it true that we never really know what the Lord's will is? No, that's not true at all. In fact, a good place to look for, uh, to understand better what his will is, is in the scripture. For example, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, For this is the will of God for you, what? Your sanctification. That is, and he explains it, that you abstain from sexual immorality. It is always God's will for everyone to abstain from sexual immorality. You can always pray that for yourself, for your children. And he says when we pray according to His will, and they're biblical prayers too, the, the prayers that Paul prayed in, in, uh, twice in Ephesians, he prays and in several other books in the Bible, he, he actually records a prayer that he has and you can just learn that prayer or write it down and say, that prayer is a biblical prayer, that's always a winner. I can pray that for my, my kids, my mom, my, my brother and since I know that it's according to His will, I can have that confidence that I'm in connection with God, He's hearing me, and that it's good to picture that when you're praying that it's like these big doors have opened up up there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, And heaven has been set in motion. Remember the, the woman with the fl- issue of blood that she'd had for 12 years. And she crawls up behind Jesus and touches the hem of His garment. And Jesus said, hey, something just happened. Like, you don't have to turn it on, Lord. I mean, does it just happen? And what we sort of get out of that passage is, is that just by the touch of faith, the Lord's power is released. And it's such a wonderful thought that as you're praying, something is already happening. You're not just, it's not a mail order thing. You're just sending in a request and who knows if it's in stock and when they'll ever answer you. That already the connection is being made. The Lord is in touch with every need and every place at every moment. And when you pray, there's nothing faster Now it doesn't necessarily, the the result you're hoping for may not happen right then because the Lord also inserts uh, all of the other factors of his perfect timing. And Abraham wanted to have a child the very next year and it didn't come for 25 years. I mean, sometimes the difference between our timing and God's timing is pretty big sometimes. But we must trust that Father knows best. But even if his timing is different, nevertheless, it's our prayers that set it in motion. It's like a, a missile that's already been launched from heaven. And it's already on its way. Now, in God's timing, it may get there later. But this was the day that we launched it. Okay. Third condition here is uh, abide in him and his words abide in you. John 15:7. if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. This wonderful promise that we looked at the other week. How God wants you to ask for whatever you want. That's pretty easy, you know. You may not know what anybody else wants, but you know pretty much what you want. You don't always, but if you know anything, you know that. And he doesn't say this. He doesn't just go around saying, ask whatever you want. He he puts some conditions before this, because this helps you want better things. Don't you know some people that want some things that would be very bad for them if they got them? He said, well, you're the same way, just maybe not quite that bad as the person you hope, <laughs> as the person you know. But he says, there are two things I want you to be doing because this, this really is going to mold you into a good team member for me. And we'll, we'll, we'll run together. He says, you need to learn to abide in me. I have a Christ-centered life. Surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Get to the point where you will say to God, as we've said before, Lord, I am your penny. You can spend me any way you want. I'm ready. And secondly, my words abide in you. You need to be a person of the word of God because that's how we get to know God. But I want you to know what we're seeing here is is that it's not a hocus-pocus kind of a thing. This isn't kind of like a magic wand and you just wave this wand and, and things will happen. Look at what he focuses on here. He says it's not about magic or spiritual power and such. It's about relationship and it's about growth. And that is what makes you a good team member with the Lord in prayer. Uh, fourth, to pray in his name. John 15:16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And then this part here. That whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give you. Now, we sort of tack that on uh, like, I don't know, it's just like part of the formula. You're just supposed to say this, so... It may be like in a recipe. You say, well, they say, to put some of this stuff in. I don't know why. I never can taste it. But I'll just put that, add that in because the recipe calls for it. But if you ever hear somebody in Spanish pray, I mean, somebody, at least the kind of people I was around, and when they end a prayer, I mean, it is like they let off a bomb or something. I'm just going to say it in Spanish so you'll sort of get the feeling for it. But when they get to the end of their prayer, they say, En el nombre de Jesús. Amén. That's the way they pray. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you're, you're just sort of, you're just praying along with him, and then at the end, whoom, you know. But why do they pray that way? Because they really believe that his name has power. We tack it on like it's just words, but it's not just words. And when you pray in the name of Jesus, you don't have to shout it out or anything like that. Everybody has their own way they like to talk and everything. But, but what's going on in your heart, that when you end that prayer, that is like, it's like putting on the stamp, that is sealing it, that's making the final connection. And what it really means is when you pray in the name of Jesus, because it's more than just the phrase, it's as though since being sinners, we, don't, we wouldn't have access to God. But God says, I've got this great idea about how we can work this out anyway. How you, a sinful human being, and sin is sort of like gasoline. And God is a consuming fire. So the closer we get, the more dangerous it is. But he says, I've got this great idea. Uh, I'm going to send Christ for you and he will be your substitute. And now when you come into my presence, you come like you are cloaked in him. Like you are in Jesus Christ. And when you come into the presence of God, you come as though you were Jesus. You pray as though you were Jesus. He will respond as though you were Jesus. He says, pray in my name. You are in Christ. And that consciousness, that i it's not that I have any right to ask for anything. But Jesus does, and I'm praying in His name. It's a wonderful, a wonderful concept. It's the idea that God has given Jesus has given us His checkbook, and up there it says, "Jesus Christ." I don't know what street, but heaven, and um, and you just write the checks, and you know they don't know who you are, but you just sign. He says, "I'm giving you uh, power of attorney." You sign Jesus Christ on that check, and they'll, and heaven will recognize it. Isn't that wonderful? I think it is. So, the next one, ask with right motives. James 4, 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And this is something we should just ask God to help us discern because it's very, very difficult to discern our own motives, frankly. That's why I think it says in in the uh, end of Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and, and know my heart. I mean, how, how, we you, sometimes you know. I'm really being awful today. But but other times, everybody else knows, but you don't know. <laughs> it's sort of like bad breath, you know? You're the last one to find out. <laughs> Somebody has to come and tell you, You're really being selfish today. But the Lord can reveal that. Uh, that's one of the wonderful things about spending more time in prayer. You're, you're in the presence, more consciously in the presence of God for Him to do stuff like that, to help you see where you're at, And what things need to change. But it doesn't mean to not ask God for good things to use for others. I mean, we're not to have an attitude of, well, I'm nothing and I deserve only hell. And so I won't ever ask for anything good for me because that would be selfish. I mean, if you have a car that's always breaking down and you're having to use other people's car, you think, well, you know, I want to have where I can be a blessing to others instead of being a burden. So, Lord, I mean, I don't need the the newest car or the best car, but I would really like a better car than what I've got. And I I promise I'm going to hold it with an open hand. I'm going to thank you for it. I'm going to use it to bless others. And, well, that's good. The Lord is not uh, set on keeping you a, a pauper or in misery or anything like that. He longs to bless you. The problem is only when the blessings get to be such a burden and and a prison for you that all you can ever think about are your blessings and keeping them all shined and polished and fixed and so you're just sort of a prisoner of, of all of your abundance. And He doesn't want that. He wants you to remember what's true and what's uh, priority. But he longs to, to bless you and it's good to ask for good things because then you're gonna give him the glory for it and, and thank him for it. And finally Fifth uh, condition, to persevere. Why would you need to persevere? Because it's not always instant, is it? In fact, often it's not. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, Luke 18, one through eight. It's not as though you shoot up a prayer and, and then look and nothing happened and say, well, that didn't work. Must, must not be loaded, must be a dud. I must not be the kind of person that can do this. He says, oh no. He says, God has done it in such a way. He says, if prayer was instant, you know how long you'd spend with God? An instant. <laughs> he says, come and stay a while. He says, uh, you know, let's move this out a little bit so you've got to pr- come a couple of times to pray because I like seeing you. Aren't there some people in your life that you love to see? I, I like to think when I, when I come into God's presence, I like to view myself as a two-year-old. You know, maybe still with a diaper on, you know, and just kind of coming in. Don't know much, and, you know, I, I'm not very helpful or anything like that. But I view God as viewing me as a two-year-old. And I think of the joy I had when my two-year-olds would walk in the room, most of the time. <laughs> and, uh, and I would just think, this is just, uh, it's so great to be a dad. And I thought, I bet you God, I, I bet you I feel that way, because that's sort of the father's heart also. And so I just come in as a little child, and I'm just so excited that he's so glad to see me, and just enjoy it. We shouldn't think of this thing on perseverance as, oh boy, he's really making this hard. I, this is a marathon right, to praying and praying and praying. No, enjoy it, enjoy it. George Miller started praying. I think for it was about five guys. I got, I was looking for the book that had the exact quote in it, but um, it was about five or seven young men. I think there were the son, some sons of friends of his that were Christians that were praying for these young men. And, and so he started praying for them and during his lifetime, let's just say there were seven, I'm pretty sure there were seven, five of them in a period of 40, 30 or 40 years came to Christ. But two of them didn't. But at his funeral service the gospel was shared and one of them prayed to receive Christ. And two years later the seventh came to Christ but the idea of persevering, pestering God because he said, I like you to do that. Uh, you, you may have another opinion, but let's go with God's opinion. He said he liked it, let's, let's just take it by faith. A verse you might want to not, not jot down is Isaiah 62, 6 and 7. Isaiah 62, 6 and 7, wonderful verse on um, the idea that God wants us to persevere in prayer and he says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, God is speaking, I have appointed watchmen all day and all night. They will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest. Give God no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Some of you have started trying to move mountains in prayer. And frankly, maybe over the last week, the mountain didn't move. What happens sometimes is you pray for something and it gets worse instead of better. It's like the situation in the Red Sea. We're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. But uh, they'd gotten out of Egypt and they were going along. And, and God says, well, I want you to turn around and camp here by the sea. And I says, I've got this great idea. I'm going to fe- change Pharaoh's mind. And they're thinking, good grief, it took us all this to get out of Egypt. And now God has got this, who knows what sort of a plan to to bring the whole Egyptian army on it. I can't think of anything good coming out of this. And sometimes God comes into a gray situation. We're calling it, Lord, please help. And he comes in with a can of black paint and starts painting it all black. He says, well, that didn't help at all. That's worse. But his glory always shines brighter with a darker backdrop. And there are times when before he makes it better, he allows it to seemingly get worse. But anyway, that's another topic. But the importance of persevering. Let's look at some barriers to prayer. What can mess us up and limit us in prayer according to the scriptures? The first one is unconfessed sin. Unconfessed sin. Isaiah 59, 2, but your iniquities have separated you from your God your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you could just write the word sin on this little cloud here around this poor little fella and he's thinking where is God? it says your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear and it is very important to make sure that your sin is dealt with and ask the Lord to search your heart don't take two hours on it you know he can show you if there's something Lord, if there's anything in the way I've grieved you, please bring it to my mind. The second one is unforgiveness. Matthew 18:34 and 35 says, it's at the end of one of these parables, in his anger, in anger his master turned him over to the jailers, this man that wouldn't forgive others, to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Heavens, and this is the New Testament. They say Old Testament is God's wrath and everything. New Testament is God's mercy. Well, this does not sound like mercy to me, you know. This is how the Heavenly Father will treat each one of you. What? He says, turn them over to the jailers to be tortured. Heavens. Well, whatever it means, we know he's telling us, I take this issue of forgiveness very seriously. And he says, I want you to take it very seriously also. Now, forgiveness is not a feeling, but it's an act of the will and they, uh, sometimes people just get stuck on thinking, yeah, but I just don't, I don't think I can ever forgive them. But th- what they mean is, emotionally, they don't think they can cover up that scar that's there. But forgiveness, and what God requires of us, is that we, by an act of our will, say, Lord, I release that person into your hands. I'm, I'm not the judge of the universe, and I, I've got my own things. But, uh, so I release them to you. And I forgive them in Jesus' name. Now, it, it, you may need to say that every single day, and you still may not feel like that forgiveness is flowing there. But that, those are the steps that the Lord expects for you to take, and he'll accept that, because that, that's, that's what you can do. You can't change your feelings, God, and God may heal that over a period of time or give you another way to see that. I want you to, to remind us all that it was, it was our fault that Jesus was crucified. We think, well, this person hurt me so bad, they, they really ruined my life. I mean, I'll never be, uh, my life would have been so different if it weren't for what this person did or, or failed to do. And we think about Jesus Christ, it says he was crucified for our sins. Jesus could say, it's because of you that my ministry was cut short, that they, that they beat me, that they crucified me, and I'll never be the same. For in all eternity, Jesus will be like the lamb who was slain. He'll still have scars in heaven forever all of our scars are going to be healed. He's going to be the only one with scars in heaven. And yet he was able to forgive. And he says, I want to do that in and through you. He says, I've been able to forgive you. You crucified me. He says, if you, if you really are walking in me, you'll learn how to forgive others also. Because whatever they did to you, it's less than what you did to me. Okay, an interesting one. Another barrier is not honoring your wife. I imagine we could include not honoring your husbands, but it, it does say wife. So let's uh, let's not take the heat off too quickly out of the, off the men. It says, First Peter three seven: Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Amen, wives. And treat them with respect as the weaker partner. You may not amen that, but, but if you get respect, you know, something is something. And as heirs with you of the grace, gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This idea of weaker partner, I'd just like to put it in perspective, although that's not our topic tonight. But I think of... Uh, the way God has made women, like um, an electrical tester. Now, this is more of an uh, illustration for men. But an electrical tester is a, is a delicate instrument, very important instrument if you're working with with circuits and all that. It's got gauges and wires and all this. And it's kind of complex. And men are like a hammer. You know, I mean, it, it's just got two parts, and and they're usually stuck together, and and you just beat things with it. So, the 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 the, um, the tester is weaker. And yet, in what it, it, it can do things that the hammer could never do, so it 's more like a sensitive porcelain or whatever it 's weaker in that sense, but not because it 's uh, less useful it's more useful in many many things it 's just different somewhat different in design. but what he says is, if you treat her like a hammer instead of like porcelain, look at that it says that will hinder your prayers so men. That's another reason, apart from just that we ought to do it anyway, just because we love our wives and we made promises before God and man to uh, uh, love our wives. But he also says there are consequences if you're not treating your wife as you should. And if you want to know if you are, just ask her. She'll tell you. Rebellion. This is an interesting one. In 1 Samuel 15, 23, it says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Now, if you picture somebody, let's just say we found there was somebody in the church that secretly on Saturday nights has a witch's coven, and they're sacrificing chickens and whoever knows whatever else they're doing and casting curses and everything, but then they're ushering on Sunday morning. Wouldn't you be horrified? I, I mean, I'd be horrified. And now he says, well, he says, hold on to that feeling. He says, rebellion, as far as the way God views it, is the same sort of thing. God would be just as horrified as somebody who was rebellious Saturday night going and ushering Sunday morning. Why? What possible link could rebellion have with witchcraft? Well, witchcraft is a desire to uh, manipulate spiritual power uh, apart from having to respond to a moral God. And rebellion is also wanting to do your, both of them is wanting to do your own thing. It just it goes about it in different ways. But both of them reject the authority of God and God's delegated authorities. And God has put people in your life, in uh, in the government, perhaps in your family, it depends on what your situation is, but all of us are under different types of authority. And God says the way you respond to them will also affect your prayers and to what degree God can work with you and not just have to work on you to help you and lead you into uh, into that s- submissive spirit that doesn't mean that you're just going to be a dishrag. It's, it's a power submission is a powerful thing but it's something we must have in our lives because otherwise the Lord will be just as grieved with us as he was if as he would be if we were mixing it getting mixed up in witchcraft and a lot of these things, we could have a whole nice little talk on each one of these, but we're just going to move ahead and say that for another time. And finally, another barrier, fifth barrier, is not knowing the scriptures. Jesus said in Matthew 22, 29, but Jesus answered and said it to them, you're mistaken, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. And he says to these leaders, he said, your problem is you don't really understand the scriptures. Now, they knew the scriptures. They could probably quote a whole bunch of these leaders. But he says, you, you're making a mistake because you have not understood the scriptures. And the importance for your prayer life is to ask God to make you a man of the word, a woman of the word of God. T- to hear it, read it, memorize it. Uh, we hope to have some things that will maybe if, if yours is interest in the scripture has sort of waned and, and you've tried but it's kind of not gone so well. Hopefully we can uh, uh, sometime after this thing on prayer also... Uh, rejuvenate that a little bit, ask the Lord to bring renewal there. But it's not just knowledge, it's not just knowing about the Scripture or what it says, but also that God would give you greater understanding. So those are some of the barriers. We want to look at different kinds of prayer activities just to to be thorough in our covering of prayer, different kinds of prayer activities. A prayer vigil, that's more common in other parts of the world. That's where you stay up half a night or all night long. They would have a prayer vigil these are real popular in a lot of countries because uh, in poorer countries, people don't have much time off, but they could they could pray all night. Now you think, well, yeah, but you've got to go to work the next day. Well, uh, that bothers them less than it bothers us, and, and they just feel like the Lord will help them. Yeah, but, you know, we could do something like that on a Friday night. They would, yeah, every country is going to do it differently, you know, I suppose. Each culture is different, but a prayer vigil might start at 9 o'clock at night and go to 3 in the morning. The youth group used to like to do that. And so they'll be singing and praying and and then maybe breaking up in small groups, and I, I get pretty sleepy, frankly. But uh, you know, it isn't the sort of thing that everybody has to like everything or do everything. I'm just trying to be give you some ideas here. Fasting and prayer is is also very popular in some parts of the world. Fasting would be another topic to cover, but that's just not eating. It, it, some people maybe will have a fast of sweets for a week or something. Uh, obviously, fasting is more than just not eating anything from lunch till supper. Uh, it's a little bit longer than that, uh, you know, maybe a, maybe a 24-hour fast. Usually you would always want to be at least drinking liquids, at least water. A half day in prayer can really be meaningful either by yourself or with your small Bible study group or you would go out to a sesquicentennial state park and take some stuff to drink in your Bible. And so you, you start off together and then you break up and and uh, go off and have a couple hours with the Lord, reading your Bible, praying, and stuff like that, and then come back together to share. We've got an activity with the discipleship course that teaches you how to have a half-day in prayer, so who knows, maybe we'll do that someday. A concert of prayer, that might be on a Friday night from 6.30 to 9.30, and it's just uh, an activity, sort of like a worship service where there's singing and and directed prayer for parts of the world, sometimes in small groups, sometimes all together, but that's been real popular in the last 10 years. Prayer walk would just be like maybe walking around your neighborhood, just praying for your neighborhood. I had a friend who was working in Mexico City, one of the largest cities in the world, and his goal was to walk all the way around the city. Now, he worked on this for about eight years because he would just only walk five or 10 miles. I mean, it was like 200 miles all the way around the greater city. So it was taking him a while. But it was his prayer walk, you know, he was just whittling away at walking all around the city. I think he finally made it too. A missions prayer trip would be to go to a place that's really not open to missionaries, but to go as though you were tourists, but then to go to different places that you knew it was particularly difficult for the gospel to penetrate. And just to uh, spend extended time praying. There was a group that went to where the uh, Colosseum was in Ephesus uh, from biblical times in the middle of Turkey. And they went there just to have a prayer and praise time. And it, but, but they viewed it as a missions outing. So this is an alternative sort of a missions uh, experience. And then there are different ways of having 40 days of special prayer. It doesn't mean you pray for 40 days, but it might mean each morning you have a, you know, a special half hour, hour, and a, and a guided thing. We've done that a couple of times also in Argentina. So just to give you some ideas, you don't have to do any of them, but just I want you to at least, if somebody ever said a vigil or something, I want you to at least know what it was, okay? But I want you to know in all this, he's leading you to joy. That's where he's going with this. He's not trying to multiply law in your life. He's not trying to burden you down with even more weights than you already have. John 16, 24, until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. And I hope that this dis- will describe at least some of you after this course. That maybe up until this time you really hadn't been asking for that much. You thought maybe there was some virtue in not asking. You know, I'm going hold myself back and I'll, so that he won't think I'm, I'm greedy. He says, no. He says, in fact, if you don't ask, you're sinning against me because I commanded you to ask. Oh, okay. Well, now you realize, oh, okay, I'm supposed to ask. Okay. And why is he going to answer? What is he looking for? Where is he leading us? That your joy may be made full. So when you ask and he gives it to you, don't feel bad about it. Oh, I know I don't deserve this and well, and no, just rejoice, enjoy it. Say, oh, this just shows what a wonderful God you are. Enjoy it. (coughs) Well, we wanna move into a topic that I wasn't gonna cover, just a little bit of an overview on (coughs) spiritual warfare as it relates to prayer. And, of course, our spiritual warfare is against three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we're going to focus at this point just on uh, the third of those, uh, the spiritual warfare particularly related to uh, Satan. And first I want to give you a a couple of thoughts on perspective. On perspective. The first thought is we should exercise, we should have caution but not terror. We seem to swing between two extremes, Like there's no problem, and there's nothing to worry about, or you can't even go to sleep at night. I don't know what you saw on TV. I mean, I remember when they used to have that show, The Outer Limits. I mean, there are all sorts of different things that they try to get you scared about, you know. But uh, when I was a child, uh, even the music, I would be in another room. I, I wasn't dare going to go in the room where they were where it was on the tv you know but sometimes i'd be walking up the stairs and just i would hear a little bit of the music oh and i i, I would already lose it i'd run up to my room you know uh, now you're probably not a scaredy cat like i was but uh, i was pretty bad but there are a lot of things that's on the market if, if they're not selling selling sex or or greed or something like that they're selling terror just i guess people are looking for something to get them out of the humdrum you know but a lot of that has been sown in your heart. And so sometimes people are just sort of caught between these two extremes of saying that there's no problem at all, no problem at all. There really isn't a devil. And if he is, he, he's in Africa. You know, he, he's not here. Or, good grief, you know. Sh- should I be afraid? And so we want to we try and come to a more biblical understanding of this. What, how does God want you to feel about this? And I think this is one of the points he wants to bring to us. We should grow in caution but not terror. Uh, I think uh, just uh, this is just a Henry sort of a thought here, so it may not be, you know, you may disagree, and that's fine. But I was trying to find some parallel that you could relate to to kind of give you a feeling level uh, idea of how you're supposed to feel about this. Okay? I think it should be like our attitude toward germs or roaches, our attitude toward spiritual powers, uh, demons, things like that. Why? Germs, germs uh, can kill you. They can be uh, really, really bad for you. But I don't know too many people that go around thinking, "Oh gosh, I think there might be a germ there," uh, you know, uh, and stay awake at night thinking germs. No. What do you do with germs? Well, you can't see them, and that that for some people that you know you think, well, maybe you should be scared of them because you can't see them. No, no, we don't need to be afraid of them. We just need to know that if you uh, live a certain way, your body is already made to repel germs. So when you, you work to, to eat right, get exercise, and all those sort of things, you don't have to focus on germs. So I wonder how many germs are in this room? I don't know. Probably millions of them. I don't care. I have life in me that repels that. Now if you live an unhealthy life, then you need to worry about germs. Because they are all around. As, as anybody that has a, an immune deficiency situation we'll we'll realize. And why are they like roaches? Well, in every one of your houses there are probably a couple of roaches. Now you're not going to go torch the house because of that. I found a roach, we've got to burn the whole thing down. No! Normally you don't think about it. When do you think about it? When one crawls out, what do you do? You call your husband, right? And he goes and steps on it. You don't get a shotgun, you know. You know, a foot will do. And so roaches are a pest, but they're not going to ruin your life. It shouldn't keep you awake at night. And that's sort of like, for the Christian, uh, the spiritual battle. Those things are there. And just in the same way with germs, we, we learn to exercise caution as far as the health of our bodies. In the same way spiritually, we should take care to be close to the Lord. The enemy can only harm us with the Lord's permission. Now, what do I mean by that? 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Paul says, and because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he had had, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me, meaning that God allowed it to be given to him, a thorn in the flesh, a very well-known passage, a messenger of Satan. Why would God allow that? Uh, to buffet me, how horrible, to keep me from exalting myself. God couldn't find any other way to keep Paul from thinking too highly of himself with all the miracles he'd seen, with the visions of heaven he'd seen. I mean, I, I guess that would make you feel pretty special. You know, you happen to be the only guy on the block that's seen heaven. And, and you begin to think, well, it's because I'm such a special person. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm better than everybody else. And God says, well, I don't want you to think that. So we have to figure out how to put more ballast in the bottom of your boat so that the wind doesn't tip it over. And so God allowed this thorn in the flesh to be given That was from Satan. But notice how God in his sovereignty was using Satan to keep Paul humble and useful. And what this means is that there could be things that happen in your life as a result of the enemy. But if you are walking with the Lord, for the enemy to touch you, he's got to get permission from God. And God has only allowed it because he's ultimately going to use it for good. Translation, you don't need to worry about it. What you need to worry about is being close to the Lord. The Lord is like a shield here. Let's say this is the shield. And if I'm, if I'm totally behind that shield, no problem at all. You know, so I have to make sure I am behind the shield. Now what if, now what if I'm thinking, oh, well, no, there's no problem. There's no war going on like this. I stick my head up, bang, get it shot right off. I am not strong in myself. The Lord is fully strong enough. So that's this kind of interesting thing where I need to exercise the caution to say, I am fully safe in Jesus Christ, but am I in Jesus Christ? It's not something to be taken lightly. An application of this would be to consciously reject fear because some of you are very bound by fear. You're just afraid of just about anything. And even the possibility that they're on top of all the other things you're afraid of, there might be demons in the world. Good grief, you know, that was just what I needed. But he wants to, in the process of growing up in Christ, he wants to be delivering you from all of your fears. He says in Luke 12:4 through5, "And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear? Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He's not talking about the devil. The devil does not have that authority. Only God does. The Lord says, you be afraid of me because I'm also the most loving person in the, in the universe, so you're safe with me. And if, you're, if I'm the one you're most afraid of, you won't fear anything else. The second point is deal with it, but don't emphasize it. Deal with it, uh, any, any spiritual warfare issue of w- whatever nature, as far as demonic things or stuff like that. We should glance at the enemy and gaze at Jesus. Jesus didn't go around talking about demons that much. I mean, sometimes it would come up, but he would just deal with it like that roach and then move on to talk more about God. Glance at the enemy, gaze at Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Third point, be realistic, not fatalistic or triumphalistic. I'm afraid that's not even a word, but we'll just invent it tonight. <laughs> realistic. Uh, fatalistic uh, would be the thinking, oh, man, there are demons everywhere and I'm, I've had it. Triumphalistic would say, uh, there are no demons or I'm, I'm Superman. I, they can't touch me. You know, Jesus is in me and demons can't affect me at all. Not necessarily, depending on whether or not you're totally in Jesus. Jesus isn't a good luck charm in the pocket. He's someone that we choose to walk with. And to the degree you surrender to the Lord, your whole being will more and more be filled with light. But to the degree you kind of play a lip service to the Lord, but dabble in darkness, to that degree you invite a foothold by the enemy, whatever form that takes. And we're not that worried about Well, what do you mean? Exactly what do you mean? Well, the Lord doesn't explain it all that much. He keeps it real simple. He says, you be on good terms with me and we're going to do do just fine. I guess he figures we would just get so fascinated with all the details of it. He says, you don't need to know all of that. But But you do need to know these things. Be realistic. The battle is not over yet. How do we know that? Why would he give us the armor in Ephesians 6 if we were invincible? You need, an, you need armor because the war is still going on and that without that armor, you could get hurt. First Peter 1.13, Therefore gird your minds for action, keep sober in spirit because we are still at war. Someone once said, Victory is never final, failure seldom fatal. And we need to realize the battle is not over. We need to maintain a balance between thinking that all is lost or that the whole battle is over. Now I want to talk to you a little bit about our weapons. Our weapons, when you think of spiritual weapons, and we looked at this verse before, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, that starts off, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war or do battle according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. What are the weapons of our warfare? And this is my conclusions so far. First, the name of Jesus but spoken with spiritual authority. There were demons also at the time of Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, it's, he, the demon calls out, you're Jesus of Nazareth. Do you think that demon had power because he could throw around the name of Jesus? No. It, dep- it also means that you are walking with the Lord and surrendered to him, and you, therefore, when you use his name, there is power in, in, the, in the use of the name Jesus because you belong to him. Secondly, the word of God. With a, you know, that's part of the armor, being girt about with the belt of truth. I know a friend who was ministering to somebody in Argentina, very, very troubled with, uh, you know, demons. And at one point they, said they, they just gave him the creed to read. Now, we, I mean, this is just a little creed, you know. I mean, it's great, but uh, I believe in one God. Well, he was, started reading that and just fell off his chair and kind of rolled into the corner and was there growling just from reading the creed. What this means is is that the scriptures is powerful, the truth of God is powerful. And so when you're feeling under attack, read the Bible, quote the Bible, quote the creed. They don't seem to like that either. (laughs) Another one is, is holiness. See, our weapons are totally different than what we would maybe expect. But to live a holy life, that gives the enemy nothing to grab onto in your life. You don't want to leave anything there that's uh, that's bad, and if it is bad, get it confessed to remove any kind of a foothold or any opportunity for the enemy. Evangelism, the enemy hates evangelism; he wants you to be negative, critical, quiet, and that's a very powerful force in spiritual warfare. Is evangelism forgiveness? Is another very powerful spiritual force. We're going to move through this quickly here. Unity and reconciliation also. To really work toward that, because the devil always wants to divide. A quick testimony on that was a was a wife went to a conference and she was so miserable in her marriage because her husband was so selfish and everything, and and she says, well, what should I do? And they said, well, just go home and tell your husband that you're the source of all the problems. She says, but that would be that's not true. I, I mean, most of the problem, 90% is his problem. Well, that's our suggestion to you. So she went home and she. Thought, well, you know, maybe I will do that. So, so she fixed him breakfast the next morning because he always wanted her to fix him breakfast. And, but he was sitting there just quietly behind his paper, you know. And, uh, and then he says, well, Miss Spiritual, what would you learn at the conference? And uh, she came around and knelt down beside him. And she said, I learned that I'm the problem. I'm All the problems we've had in our marriage are my fault. And he said he almost upset the table getting up out of his chair to kneel down beside her. He says, oh, no. It's, it's They just cried and cried there for a while. But unity and reconciliation, the humility to be reunited with your brother, with your sister, so powerful, so disappointing to the enemy. And finally, thanksgiving and praise, particularly when the opposite is your tendency because of your situation or whatever. Thanking the Lord, praising Him, even in the midst of pain. I just want to go through... These final things, as God t- reveals to us in Scripture how important prayer is. The four centuries of silence between the Old and New Testament is broken when Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, is in the temple, and the angel appears to him. The temple was the place of prayer. He was going into the temple at the hour of prayer. Gabriel says to him, your prayers have been answered. He was a person of prayer. He was offering him incense. That was the one symbol of prayer in the temple. And outside, everybody was praying. It was the place of prayer, the hour of prayer, the person of prayer, the symbol of prayer, the community of prayer, and 400 years of silence was broken, and God spoke again. And then on through, you can look at the baptism of Jesus. When 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 were the heavens open While he was praying. When he chose the 12, he prayed all night. The transfiguration, when was he changed and transfigured? While he was praying. The three last words of Christ were prayers. The road to Emmaus, they talked with him for a long time. It was when he prayed that they recognized him. The coming of the Holy Spirit was after 10 days of 120 people praying. Acts 3, it was at the hour of prayer the paralytic was healed. Acts 4, they pray there's an earthquake. Acts 6, they elect deacons so that they can keep praying. Acts 7, Stephen is killed. What is he doing when he's killed? He's praying. The apostles prayed for the Holy Spirit on the Samaritans. Acts 9, when Paul is... When they, He says, Ananias, you need to go see this guy. His name is Saul. Why should I go see him? Because he's praying. And on the way down, James 5, seven times he says, Is anyone sick? Pray. Is anybody rejoicing? Pray. Pray, 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 pray. Revelation 1.10. John got this huge revelation in the end of our whole Bible. When did he get it? When he was praying. It reminds me of the, of the last movies. Where Timmy says, you know, is barking. And Timmy says, hey, I think he's trying to tell us something. (laughs) God did a whole lot more than bark at us. He said again and again and again, this is what moves heaven. Will you not pray? Will you not seek the Lord? I just want to encourage you to draw near to the throne of grace. Zeal should consume us. Call on the Lord. We're going to feel pretty bad if we get to heaven and find out it was all true. And there we were sitting on our hands with our excuses and our distractions. We must learn to pray. Your life depends on it. It's your spiritual oxygen. It's a crime against heaven not to pray. You were made to do this. This is your life. And he will help you as you call on him. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I pray that your promises and encouragement would just sink into our hearts. This is life and health and joy and peace. This is not law and drudgery. This is not a waste of time or just words uttered into the air. This is what sets all of heaven in motion and brings heaven down to earth. Please, Lord, we've been so weak and even a twig sometimes would just crush us but we believe you can raise the dead and you can resurrect our prayer life to be what it has never been before. Touch us, help us, kindle a new fire, and we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If the message has encouraged you, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast. We hope you'll join us again for the next podcast of Bringing Truth to Life.